the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Addie McCasland. Today, I'm talking with Carolyn Burns, an instructor and field faculty liaison for the School of Social Work at the University of Oklahoma online campus. Carolyn is a licensed clinical social worker who has practiced therapy for more than 18 years. Additionally, with more than 23 years of social work experience, her career has spanned from public housing to owning a private practice. She has a passion for working with the lower income, marginalized population, particularly adolescents, as well as working with people who have experienced extreme trauma. Carolyn was a presenter at the 2023 Zero Mental Health Symposium, New Horizons in Brain Science, where she delivered a fascinating presentation called This Is Your Brain on Trauma. You can hear a little bit about that talk here. A quick but important warning, this episode talks about physical and sexual abuse. While it's important dialogue to have, we understand that it could be difficult for some listeners. The mental health download starts now. Well, I am Carolyn Byrne, and I am a social worker. I've been a social worker for 23 years now. My day-to-day -day is very crazy. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I have a private practice. My clients are middle-aged women and mm -hmm. teenagers, so two totally different populations. The common thread that runs through all of them is trauma. Sure. Being a trauma survivor myself, overcoming sexual abuse and learning how to navigate that space, especially from a family member, I wanted to pull others out. That's my profile on psychology today emulates that. So I get a lot of referrals mm -hmm. because it's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of courage to do it. And so that's my private practice, my baby. And I, I do work full-time at OU as a faculty liaison. So I teach a class on counseling mm -hmm. and then I work with students, master's level social work students in the field. And so my real passion is, I know I can't reach everybody, but if there's a student that wants to impact clients that have been through trauma, it gets me, like I get real excited about being able to share my experience with them in the field so that they can impact them in a more effective way. A lot of trauma survivors that are going into social work desire to work in that population. If you've come through child welfare, you tend to want to be that beacon of light for that population. Mm -hmm. And I think that's awesome. And so those are two of my jobs. I don't do it every day, but I did it this morning. I have two former students that asked me to be their licensed supervisor. And mm -hmm. so I supervised them for licensure. They were my students for two years at mm -hmm. LU and I know their work level, they're in direct practice. So I was honored. I got my supervisor's license just for the two of them. And we mm -hmm. have a blast. They were hungry. They want to learn. And I just love it. If me helping them helps them become a better therapist, I'm all about it. Yeah. And then um, I'm a mom. That's my job. That's my, that's my job, 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 job. Yeah, uh, yeah for sure. <laughs> the 24-7 one, right? Uh, yes, yes. For a 15-year-old male child. Oh. So that requires another level of patience. Sure. <laughs> a lot of fun, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> just to briefly touch on your students that you are supervising for licensure, just because that's an interesting piece. What does that process look like when if somebody has graduated with their master's and they are, I guess, in their candidacy for licensure? Is that how that goes? Yeah, right, right. What they have to do is we have what we call for our state, they have to take an L. It's an area of accountability, really, so that while you're billing sooner, you can only bill state insurance and cash pay clients at that level. Okay. Um, they have to take kind of like a generalist type exam. 
when they graduate with their master's degree. Um, when they pass it, they're considered a licensed master social worker. Mm-hmm. And so some jobs are starting to require that, whether they're in direct practice or not. I think it's just a level of accountability. And once they pass that exam, they apply to find a social work supervisor. And then I fill out some of their paperwork. They fill out paperwork. We turn it into the licensing board mm-hmm. and then they approve it. And then from whatever date to whatever date, I am their licensed supervisor. So I have to hold them accountable. I have to meet with them weekly. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the LMSW exam is concerned, they have a year to pass the test. So I can actually supervise them today mm-hmm. for a year, but they have to pass the exam within that 12-month period. Most of the people that get on the licensure would rather pass that exam right after school because everything's fresh in their mind. Oh, sure. They don't want to be under supervision for a whole year, get to the 11th month and fail that test. So they rather just go ahead and take it in advance, which I always encourage them to do that. Just kind of get that off their back. Every week we meet and it's kind of like they don't meet together every week. Twice a month I meet with them in a group and twice a month it's individual. Mm-hmm. And when it's together, I try to teach them practical things like how to build insurance and how to build your caseload and how to schedule because they don't really know how to navigate that space. And that's where a lot of my experience was working for youth services at Tulsa was mm-hmm. learning how to build sooner care learning how to work with a population that might not schedule things. You emailing people that don't check emails, they live day to day. So you have to understand the population you're working with when you're scheduling. I used to text my clients if they had a phone that day, keep them on the same day because they'll have a cell phone with no service. Mm -hmm. They don't put stuff down in their schedule. You're thinking like a college student, like a middle-class person. They're thinking, I'm just trying to survive today. Right. And so just trying to teach them how to navigate that space. If you're working with teenagers, they are just here today. They they love you today. They hate you tomorrow. Sure. I date you and marry you. I broke up with you. I hate you. Yeah. Tomorrow, you know. Right. So it's fun. It's fun, you know, just processing <laughs> those things. That we, can't, we haven't even got to modalities and things like that. We're just trying to get them a full caseload right now and how to navigate scheduling and stuff like that. So that's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that most people who have spent time, say, in the system or have experienced trauma in childhood, they are inspired to go into this line of work or this industry. Would you say that most people who are already in this industry are trauma survivors? I don't think most people are, but I think there's a percentage, you know, just being at OU and working with different field partners and Mm -hmm. we have some students that work in child welfare. And so we have liaisons that have worked in child welfare for 20 something years and they're retired. And so they work specifically with those students. Mm -hmm. A lot of our field supervisors, they have been, I would say maybe 15, 20% have been trauma survivors. Uh, I wouldn't say the majority. I think the majority of people, if you go into child welfare, you have a desire to help children. For sure. It's hard work. It's not easy at all. Yeah. Speaking of trauma, so trauma informed, I was having this conversation with somebody else a week or so ago, and the importance of being trauma informed, but also how trauma informed has kind of become a buzzword lately, become an opportunity for marketing or for capitalism. Can you talk about what it truly is like to be trauma informed as opposed to some of these, you know, $99 online courses become a trauma. I know, right? 
her. I think the most, the high for me, you know, just based on my personal experience with clients, they need to feel that you are trustworthy. Um, like I'm not going to my, hear my business out in the street, so to speak, sure. in layman's terms. They need to trust you, trust your experience, trust that you're going to keep their information confidential. Mm-hmm. With teenagers, they need to know that you're going to be consistent. So that's why it takes a while. But I think the number one thing is they need to feel safe. Yeah. I had a client that was a veteran that mm-hmm. experienced trauma, sexual abuse in the home. Mm-hmm. in the military and it was divorced and so she it was like com- compacted trauma mm-hmm. and she said carolyn i have never felt safe yeah that was just like Phew. right they need to feel safe yeah whatever you need to do to make that happen for them for some i've had a client certain music bothered her I have an oil diffuser in my office. I ask them, does the smell bother you? I mean, you need to go to these extremes. You don't know what's going to trigger somebody. You just don't. And so if it's a sound, if it's a smell, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. you need to investigate. Do we need to incorporate some of their culture? Like I have two boys that are native Mm -hmm. and African-American. I'm learning more about Cherokee just so we can incorporate some of that into that because that makes them feel like you care about me you care about my culture you care about my safety sure Uh, sure. yeah yeah so that's what it means for me they have to feel safe and for every client that's not going to be the same but as you work with them you ask them that what is going to be good therapy for you even if they're teenagers i just need to be able to talk have somebody to talk to bounce stuff off of and every once in a while they don't want to be the trauma victim sometimes they just want to sit here and play uno talk right. about nothing yeah it's want to feel normal like yeah. they don't want to just be this client a traumatized person a person that has been through trauma uh-huh. to separate the, the the event from the person mm-hmm. and if they want to talk about nothingness and play uno for that one session that's what we're going to do that week yeah that's interesting. That brings up two things for me. The first one is I was editing a podcast just yesterday with one of our keynote speakers. It was a conversation between one of our keynote speakers for Zero Mental Health Symposium and our mm-hmm. chief programs officer. And this particular speaker, his name is Dr. Xavier Amador, um, and he is founder of the LEAP Institute. And he was talking about his his his, uh, his presentation for the for this year is on anosognosia. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but for those who are not, it is when somebody's experiencing mental illness and they do not believe that they are ill, right? And mm-hmm. he was talking about how important it is with any of his clients, whether they are living with anosognosia or not, for it to be person-driven, the treatment to be person-driven and recovery-driven and letting them be the guide, you know, like you're in charge. Mm-hmm. So that when you said how, what do you think your therapy should look like? It reminded me of that and how mm-hmm. much that makes sense. And the safety makes so much sense. And I'm curious to know, when you said the number one thing, they they need to feel safe. They need to be able to trust you. And I'm wondering how long in your experience it takes somebody to build that trust with you. And if there are any tried and true techniques that you have that you've employed to gain that trust so you can be an advocate for your clients. I think my one client that I'm thinking about, she's an adult. We are almost two, maybe two and a half years in. And it's on the second, a lot of them is two years for adults. 
Uh-huh. I think it takes longer for adults than it does for teenagers. Teenagers, they need to see consistency. That can be three, four, five months because they don't have that much life behind them. But this one client, we're just now getting to the abuse that she experienced from mom. Mm-hmm. And I think because she is starting to feel safe and she's in a healthy relationship, mm-hmm. I think it's in her brain is saying it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. So she's starting to have dreams about her childhood because she has totally blocked that out. Mm-hmm. Her sister remembers things. She has blocked a lot of things out. So it's now that we're dealing with the childhood trauma. She's a grown 40-something-year-old woman working on her second master's degree. Uh-huh. And yet now we're going back to the six-year-old person, the seven-year-old person. Mm-hmm. So I think with adults, it's almost two years. I've had her for about a year uh-huh. before she started to really tell me about how abusive her father was. Mm-hmm. And it made everything make sense. Yeah. Like everything made sense how she makes herself invisible in a situation she doesn't validate her own feelings or experiences and like everybody else's thing is more important than yours Mm -hmm. and so we've been working together for a year so for an adult i would say one to two years consistently we meet on tuesdays and sometimes she just talks about what happened how her doctor's appointments are going and then i had to push her just a little bit for some detail. And then one day she just started talking about how abusive her dad was to her mom. She watched it. She got in the way because she's the oldest. Usually it's the oldest that takes the brunt yeah. of a, a lot of things. Yeah. And my other point. client is also the oldest. Yeah. yeah so yeah. they try to protect the younger ones. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was also my experience. I too grew up in an abusive household. My mother was um, verbally and physically and emotionally mm-hmm father yeah he was around until I was 10 years old and he left and and I've heard from him about every 10 years since that point in time I'm 47 now mm-hmm. so anyway that's neither here nor there but it does relate in that when I finally started going through therapy to deal with childhood trauma mm-hmm. I was you know I was 45 at the time I was going through this group therapy program called green shoe Edmond, Oklahoma. So I entered Green Shoe, this week-long intensive group therapy program. So I thought, you know, I'll start there. And it was very easy for me to present facts about my childhood. I mm-hmm. could say, these are the things that happened. Yes, I was physically abused nearly daily. Yes, my dad has disappeared multiple times from my life. And, you know, all these varying components that made up just kind of the shit show that my life was for a, a number mm-hmm. of years. But it took in, you know, a long time for me to feel safe to express any emotion around it. I could talk. Mm-hmm. I could not have vulnerability around it. Right. Um, so we intellectualize. Yeah. And that's that's one of mine. And my client is, she's like me. She's like a little me. Mm-hmm. She does the same thing I used to do. She's so smart. She's so smart. You're talking about it as if it's like in a textbook somewhere without the feeling. You have totally disassociated yourself from the experience and you're talking about it as if it's happening to somebody else. So you have removed the emotion from it. So you can talk about, he did this. My client's like, he pulled a gun out on us and stuck it in her face and she had to pause. So that made me know she was experiencing the emotion as she was telling the story. Uh But it's intellectualizing. 
do. Yeah. I do. It's a coping skill. Sure. Um, and this may be personal and you can tell me you do not want to answer it, but was that also your experience? You mentioned growing up, experiencing trauma in childhood. Did you experience the intellectualization? Oh, absolutely. My my coping skill was be smart because I love reading and sure. stuff like that. Now, my it wasn't daily because my cousin didn't live with us, but I was in the honor society in middle school. And what really I feel like saved me was getting New York boarding school. You could go to boarding school because you got a scholarship or you have money. We didn't have money. And so I got a scholarship to boarding school upstate New York. And so 10th, 11th and 12th grade, I was able to get out of the house Mm -hmm. and I only came home on the weekend. I grew up, I had all boys around. I didn't grow up with my sister. So I grew up with three brothers. So sometimes I experienced physical abuse at the hands of my brother not on a daily basis, like when my mother put him in a position because my dad was on drugs and he wasn't there and then he died. Carolyn did this and then he hit me or he punched me in my head or whatever. And we talked about this. My brother and I have a great relationship now, but we talked about this. I think it's because I understand now and I understood it up here that she put him in a position to be an adult when he was only like 18, 19 years old. So that's why he had ulcers too. We all experienced some level of trauma based on what was going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I totally. And so my best friend knows now she knows if I say something like, I was thinking about doing some training. She'd be like, what are you going through? She knows I deflect. Like I will <laughs> totally bury myself in a training. That's how I keep myself accountable. She has to make sure that I surely want to do this for the love of learning and right. she'd be like, what are we trying to avoid now? You know what I mean? So I think healing of trauma is a continual thing. Absolutely. You know? It's a continual thing. And so she knows, mm-hmm. say I want to do a training. She has to be like, are we doing this because we want to learn something? Or are we trying to avoid something? That's, that's a, great that's a great friend. I'll get a PhD today to avoid. So. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I am a chronic list maker. And actually my, my therapist has called me a taskmaster, you know, <laughs> I am too. I'm like, what's on my, I have a book for to-do lists. I got it for work. So a yeah. book for to-do lists. Yeah. It's a book for to-do lists. Oh, that's amazing. But, yeah. yeah the name of that. <laughs> so. Yeah, she's like, I need that book. <laughs> yeah, let me feed my coping mechanisms here. <laughs> so, I know, right? Yeah. All right. So you are one of our breakout session presenters at Zero Mental Health Symposium. Mm-hmm. And your topic, this is your brain on trauma. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, without giving too much of your presentation away, can you talk a little bit about the presentation itself? And then maybe we can talk further about the the concept of your brain on trauma. Okay. Well, it's a little bit of a play on back when I was younger, they had, this is your brain on drugs and they like broke this egg and, yes, you know, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of a play on that. And so we'll have the brain, like a picture of the brain and the prefrontal cortex talk about the neurology of it. Mm-hmm. And then what does that look like? So my, my co-presenter, Latia, she's also a trauma survivor. And I also find that my, my friends are usually trauma survivors. Um, she works with a lot of harder cases, dual diagnosis and things like that. So this is what it looks like. We'll have pictures of the brain and, you know, MRIs and things like that, just different pictures of that. And what does that look like in person? So the people that are hands-on working with it, because I like to give the facts and then, you know, how does this help me in what I'm doing? 
-hmm. So this is what you can notice if a person does this, that could mean this. So kind of trying to do a play on this is your brain on trauma because it kind of mimics ADHD a little bit. And it was a while, maybe 10 years into being a therapist that I realized a lot of my clients, it wasn't ADHD. That's just the fruit on the tree. Mm. It hijacks your attention. Okay. And so when she had somebody walking up to her in her car, her prefrontal cortex was like danger, 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 danger. So as people come to her, physiologically, she's sweating, she's shaking, she's yelling to her son, get in the car. You know, she's having this moment because her prefrontal cortex is off. And you literally have to tell yourself the same thing over and over and over. So we had to develop terms for her, like you're safe. It was an elderly lady, but it was just like the proximity was too close to her. As she was trying to ask her a question, she was like, I don't want you to come near me. Yeah. Um, and she was in terror. That's kind of what I do. I'll show what happens to the brain. Mm-hmm. Your attention is gone, mm-hmm. right? And so I think a lot of people mistaken ADHD when it really they're dealing with some PTSD. You're triggering them. And once they're off track, their attention is gone. Mm-hmm. And you literally have to say the same thing. I used to say that to myself. You're safe, 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 you're safe. And then my brain would be like, you're safe. Okay. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. It may take you five minutes to do that. But because it, it's reminding you of something else. I love the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Because yeah. your body is reacting to something that your brain hasn't caught up with yet. And so you're like, why am I sweating? What is happening? Why do I feel anxious? And then later on, you'll process, oh, it reminded me of when I was abused and so-and-so was walking up to me. But in that moment, you just like, and so your attention is gone. And that's why it looks like ADHD because those kids are in class and they're not paying attention. It's like squirrel. I had a client where the yelling of the teacher reminded him of his mom. His mom was a crack addict and an alcoholic. And so he was just having a moment where he couldn't focus. And it's like, I got to get out this room right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We had to come up with a care plan for him at school to go to a school counselor immediately. Because we couldn't tell the teacher not to yell. Um, She wasn't going to listen to us necessarily, but we had to get a coping skill for him so that he wouldn't lose it. And that's what I learned sitting with a psychologist when I took one of my clients there. He had not just ADHD, but he had attachment disorder because he watched his younger sister get raped by his mom's husband and was threatened within an inch of his life. And in that moment, his brain was going somewhere else to cope. And it looked like he had ADHD, but he really had PTSD. He was trying to check out just like when people get raped. Sometimes they don't recognize, they can't tell you a thing about their rapist because they were trying to cope with the experience. So their brain was going somewhere else to cope with the experience while it was happening. And so that's why I say it kind of mimics ADHD and the fact that your attention is gone in that moment. And you don't remember details. All you... You're in fight or flight, like I got to get the hell out of this right now, even though you might not really be in danger. Right, right. right. I know that's probably more than you needed, but no, no, no. Now, Latia has a lot of real life, like we both work with trauma, but hers are a little bit more extreme because she is a LADC. She has a drug and alcohol license. Mm-hmm. Her mom was on crack for 20 something years before she passed went in and out of DHS custody, all kinds of stuff. And so her passion is to work with the cases that some people will not work with. That is her desire to help that population because she hasn't found a therapist yet 
that can really help her process through some of the things. And so sometimes she just calls me yeah. and we just process <laughs> things together. Yeah. <laughs> I have people's unofficial, you know, <laughs> I get it. Like I get the explosive anger and sometimes I have to just back her out of some stuff. So if we can help professionals recognize some of the things like bedwetting and, you know, when they have foster children in their house or when they're working with families in the foster care system or whatever the case is where you may not know the family history. Sometimes they, you know, if you have an, an addict in the house or alcoholic, um, they're very temperamental. Right. And so we had kids that didn't go to the bathroom because they didn't want to wake dad up because he would beat them. So right. they peed on themselves mm -hmm. in their bedroom. They had to do that. Yeah. And so sometimes professionals be like, oh, that's why this is happening. Just recognize some of the, the characteristics of people that have been in trauma. Yeah. And so hopefully that's my goal is to give people, this is what the brain will look like. This is what it might look like in a client, personally. I'm curious, so you mentioned having a word or a phrase for somebody to repeat to themselves if they're feeling a trigger that it's not actually dangerous, but their body says, or whatever it is, says they are mm -hmm. danger. And, you know, you use the example, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe. What if you're working with a client who is a bit of a skeptic and does not feel like, oh, I can just repeat a phrase to myself over and over and over again until it's effective. But if you find somebody who's resistant to that, do you, are there other tools available that can have the same effect? Yeah, I think it, for me, I have a different process with my clients because I don't cookie cutter any of them uh -huh. because that may work for my client that has a second master's degree, mm -hmm. but that may not work for a teenager because they are more reactive. <laughs> so <laughs> I have kind of, I have to kind of be with the client and kind of talk to them to see, you know, how do they cope now? A lot of them is like verbally or physically. Okay, so how can we change that so that you can get back on track? Because in the moment, they're just, they're dealing with hormones, they're super emotional. And so it's a little bit harder for me to do emotional regulation with a teenager because they're so reactive a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So that's a hard question, but because a lot of those clients, I have tools for them. Like I have an anxiety ball. I have to give them something physically mm -hmm. to do. That works better for them. I'm saying something, not necessarily. Right. Having a fidget spinner or something or a stress ball or something in that moment where they can squeeze it and do something like that, tap their feet or something like that. They have to more exert energy out somewhere as opposed to say something to themselves because they tend to be more reactive. And I find that works a lot better, in the, especially in the classroom. I had a client throw a chair at a teacher. It's like, bro, we can't. That's why you're on probation. Like, we, he, you felt right. That's a three-year-old temper tantrum in a 14-year-old. And wow. when you're three and throw a chair, uh, throw something, and when you're 14 and throw something, that looks totally different. Yeah. So we got to raise up how you cope with a temper because you're going to have one, but you can't cope like a three-year-old. That's not right. going to work. So right. I think with, with teenagers, and younger kids, doing something physical to get that energy off in that moment may work a little bit better. And what? some of these kids have been in so many traumatic, it's just instinct for them to just survive. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, even those coping skills are not going to work for them. It's going to take a while. Yeah. 
What is it about that physical energy? Because that was how I dealt with mine until I actually started really dealing with mine by, mm-hmm. by you know, enlisting the help of professionals was mm-hmm. through distance running. And I got to where I would just run longer and run harder. And, you know, it was running these ultra marathons and, but it, it felt, it felt good actually in an esoteric sort of sense, experiencing mm-hmm. You know, the physical pain and challenge of it was so much easier than feeling, than experiencing the emotional pain. I'm wondering what that is. What What is it that makes that physical exertion so useful or so seemingly valuable? I think it's the effects on the brain because there are endorphins that go off when you exert physical activity. That's why I encourage a lot of my clients to do sports or something because I work out four or five days a week. And you know, some of my clients are in sports, not the adults, but doing something physical, like that sense of satisfaction, like the challenge of it. That's why you kept going, doing more marathon. I'm going to do this. It's that challenge and getting off, like I can do this mm-hmm. and let those endorphins go off and that sense of gratitude and satisfaction and being good at something. Mm-hmm. It does something in your brain. Like if I have a hard workout or if you're in a boot camp class and you do something you didn't think you could do, mm-hmm. it's a sense of, if I can do this, yeah. then maybe I can get through this. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the brain activity we're trying. That's that's why I try to get my clients to do something physical, mm-hmm. uh, weightlifting, and while we're working on the trauma side of it and in talk therapy, have them do something physical. I have one of them and he's in weight training at school. I think that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's a great thing you can do to get some of that exertion out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, males looks, male teenagers look way different than females. Yeah. And it's, they try to, you know, I'm reading a book, Strong Mothers, Strong Sons, and that tension that comes with teenagers and that parental female child, female adult, they're being raised by grandma. That's still that tension that they're having now is why they wanted therapy because her trying to manage him and his younger brothers, it's a challenge because now they got the hormones and testosterone and boys need to get that stuff out so they just have to somewhere mm-hmm. and you know them doing everything you said them days over like yeah. so we got to get them in something some kind of physical activity some kind of training some kind of something mm-hmm. so that they can have that sense of accomplishment i own this I, I i overcame this i pushed myself i think that makes them feel invincible in a sense yeah. So I'm just making assumptions uh, about your age based on your, you know, your career longevity. And so I'm kind of assuming we're in the same age bracket. Mm-hmm. How would you say, or would you say that trauma looks different now than it did say when we were children? I mean, I understand that abuse still happens, sexual abuse still happens, physical mm-hmm. abuse still happens, but are there other elements of trauma that that teenagers or youth in general are experiencing these days that you and I may not have? It's definitely harder for teenagers now. I see more anxiety in middle schoolers than ever. And I was talking to another therapist because we have the digital aspect that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. And so you can be cyber bullied. Mm -hmm. Your stuff can be recorded and put on TikTok. Mm -hmm. I had a client show me a fight at high school about to, it's usually girls. Girls are very aggressive, by the way. <laughs> I think <laughs> girls are more aggressive than boys. It's all girls fighting usually. Uh-huh. So they have that social media aspect that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all went through abuse and you know we saw drugs and, and stuff like that. They went through COVID. 
Yeah. That is traumatic all by itself. In my childhood, now, my childhood was different because I'm 51. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in New York in the 80s. And we did have crack come through there. We did have AIDS come through in my childhood. Cocaine was big in New York. Also, so living in a big city is its own trauma. Mm -hmm. But again, I think everything just being so digital and in your face that adds to it, that adds to it. Because not only is this happening to you, everybody's looking at it happening to you. Mm -hmm. And so it's harder to navigate. We didn't, there was no, you know, we had queer population growing up, but we didn't have gender reassignment. Mm -hmm. And so they have more choices and more challenges and, and, and everything's, they have more information and you have internet so they can be exposed to all kinds of stuff. And as parents were trying to grasp for some type of control so yeah. that it won't hurt our children in some yeah. way. It's not just information, it's misinformation as well. Yeah, a lot of it is misinformation or bad YouTube videos about mm -hmm. whatever. You can be recruited to Al-Qaeda on your Facebook. I mean, it has opened up a lot that they have to deal with mm -hmm. that we did not have to deal with. But now if you mess up, 50,000 people see it in five seconds kind right. of thing. So I'm assuming you probably saw the Surgeon General's advisory that came out in May about youth and social media. Yeah, I, I kind of follow up with that loosely, not as much as I should because I have a 15-year-old, but um, I've seen boot camps for teens addicted to electronics and games. So monitoring their screen time is huge. I have a lock on my son's computer and his phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just so I can shut down certain apps. And I mean, that's not super controlling, but it's, it's something, some kind of, yeah. Yeah. Cause YouTube is a hot mess. Sometimes <laughs> it's great. And it's a mess. It sinks. <laughs> you can get great information and you can get a lot of stupid stuff too. And just try to filter that all out is, is yeah. a task. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing, right? They need somebody that has a greater level of discernment than what say a 15 year old may have. Yeah. They don't have any kind of... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was, just, I was wondering if that report has changed at all the way you or your colleagues have navigated your practices with youth or, I mean, even personally as a mother, but it sounds like it has. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now we're getting ready to have a meeting. I just got off the phone with my client's aunt mm -hmm. just because we have to have a family meeting mm -hmm. because the two boys are struggling. And part of it is that they don't have any structure. And that's not uncommon when you grow up with your grandparents. And so, you know, too much access to video games and things like that. Now that I've been working with them since May, I kind of got a feel for the family. That's my process. I kind of work with the kid. And sometimes he brings his aunt because he trusts them. And I think in a native culture, that's very common to have the aunties. Like, uh -huh. I love the aunties. Love it. I'm a, I have 14 nieces. I love being an aunt. Yeah. And I think that is the strength of the family. I'm very strength-based. So we are going to plan a family session without the boys. Mm -hmm. So the aunts and her, their mother, since she's the one that has them full-time, we can be on the same page. Because if we're talking about self-harm now, we're talking about we don't want to go to school right now. What's going to be the best course of action going forward? And I told the aunties, let me be the heavy. Because you're her children. She not listening to y'all. She changed your diapers. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Even though you might be right, yeah. you know, I will be the bad guy because I don't have to, I'm not her child. Right. And it, it's not going to be in a way that's going to 
put her down. We're just trying to get on the same page for the care of the boys. And she can buy into that. And so I don't even know where I was going with that. But it's just that I just, I love that culture. I love culture, period. Mm -hmm. uh, I just love the strength of the extended family. Mm -hmm. And the aunts come in and be like, Carolyn, we'll take care of that. We'll do that. We'll talk to them about that. Love it. Yeah. In that story, you said that you're very strength-based. What did you mean by that? Strength-based, especially in a traumatic situation, you're trying to find the good. Like what, what is the good and what, what can we pull from this family? You know, these boys, their mom exposed them to a domestic violence mm -hmm. relationship. Their dad is back in prison. Mm -hmm. They were taken away, put in their grandparents' custody. Mm -hmm. And so grandma and their grandfather, it's not their biological grandfather, it's just her husband, but he has embraced them. And so instead of focusing all on the trauma, let's look at what are the strong aspects of your family? Mm -hmm. And one is that they feel cared for by everyone, by their grandparents. They call them mom and dad. That's mm -hmm. who raised them and their aunts. They feel loved. They feel cared for. That's a strength. They don't have to continue living in an abusive situation. So that's a strength. So we look at what can we pull on mm -hmm. to help heal this situation. So you're not necessarily, you know, like the the Pollyanna glossing over the bad, but you're 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 seeking out mm -hmm. anchors that you can latch onto and use in your yeah. Case. I kind of try to cushion the case before we delve into what we need to work on because I want them to be able to feel like okay I can fall I know if I fall I got aunt so-and-so and I got aunt so-and-so and I got grandma and I got pops and I got you know my friends and I got my girlfriend so we know that we're not just dangling out there by ourselves so I, I try to shore them up before we cut into this is what we're the relationship with their biological mother and we have just started to really talk about that. And it's hard. It's a hard topic because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like I told the oldest, he brought his aunt. That is your grandmother's daughter. Yeah. And how heartbreaking was that, that she cannot keep you two safe. Mm -hmm. And her sisters and their aunt sat here and cried. She said, you are good, Carolyn. And I said, because <laughs> teenagers don't really have perspective except for theirs. Sure, sure. And so they don't like that their mom just comes over and, and grandma did not tell them that mom was coming over. Mm -hmm. They feel some type of way about it. They don't say anything to their grandmother because they still have some low self-esteem there. They still have it there to where they're afraid to express their feelings to their grandmother. They will to their aunts, but they will not to their. Yeah. And maybe because she's the primary caregiver and does anything for them, we don't want to upset her. So we're trying to work with the support system to figure out before we talk to the boys, how can we all be on the same page for their care? To me, it's like a tribal. I say, I'm pulling in this Cherokee stuff, man. We're going to get in a circle and make it happen for these uh -huh. boys. That's uh -huh. what we're going to do. And I think they they like, we just love you, Cass. I love y'all, man. You're awesome. You teach me something I didn't know. Yeah. So yeah. when you're working with these, um, with, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll just keep going down the, the path of youth with trauma. When you're working with your clients, what does success look like? How do you know when you are on the right track or when maybe your clients are ready to move on from therapy? I think as an individual for each person, one girl, I mean, she had a specific goal in mind. Her dad was more abusive towards mom, a very passive aggressive, 
you know, we only had a short period of time because I only see Sooner Care up until 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And so this was her second time having services with me first when she was 15 and then when she was 18. Mm-hmm. And so we had specific goals in mind. And she wanted to be a social worker also. And she wanted to work through some of the things that affects how she deals with other people. You know, she realizes her dad being the person that he was and still having relationship with him. She realized that has some residual effect on how she relates to other people. So Mm -hmm. I think a degree of self-awareness is one win for me. Yeah, part of therapy being effective is you have to know we have an issue we need to work on. I can't tell you that. If you own it and then you come in and say, you know what I did? I bought some stuff on Amazon for my anxiety. Let's do it. What is it? You know? This girl, she ordered so much stuff. I'm like, are you going to use all that? <laughs> she has so much but She just likes shopping, I think. And so that's one thing. And then she aged out and I found her some other therapist to work with to continue. Mm-hmm. But she didn't want to do that. She's like, I will pay cash. And so because she was at TCC, we got her some therapy that way. Because she's 18, 19 years old, living with her sister, finally moved out of her parents. I didn't want to take her money like that. But just work with what you can afford to do. And then if after that, you, you got my number, you got my email, you want to pay cash, I will put you on a sliding fee scale and you can go there. So that's one thing. One client, the veteran I had, as we process our goal, when she read the body keeps the score, she realized why her body was reacting one way. She, I mean, she's a very smart person, bachelor's degree and everything. Couldn't even make spaghetti without like much thinking. She liked analogies. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you have like three full suitcases that if you open them, they're going to explode with clothes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what your trauma is. Your trauma is the clothes in the suitcase. She said, I smell what you're cooking. That's what she said. She, she's totally an analogy person, right? Veteran, super smart. And once she realized, okay, my body is shutting down because it is experiencing the trauma, even though my mind is like, I know how to make spaghetti. Mm-hmm. You know? And so we discovered that EMDR is good. She She felt like, being a Christian yoga was not going to be an option for her. So I try to work with what people, their religious beliefs, you know, things like that. And so we referred her back to Veterans Affairs. They started EMDR and I wanted her to have at least one or two sessions before I ended her case. And so that's how we, we just moved her. I was a stop on the train. I said, I'm a stop on the train. I got you to discover why your body's responding this way. And this is what we're going to do. And she processed her first two EMDR sessions. Her analogy, she came in guns blazing, Carolyn, asking me all these questions like boom, boom, boom. Like we didn't even have a date. She's like, was ready to go to bed. You know, that's that's how she talked. It was hilarious. Yeah. And then I kind of eased her into it. And then she went to EMDR and that was it. Can you, for the listeners who don't know what it is, can you explain that? Oh, I don't even remember what all the letters mean, but uh-huh. it, has to, it has to do with um, my friend did the training. And it has to do with focusing the attention somewhere else. I am not going to be a good person to explain sure. him. Fair enough. I don't even remember what all those, what the letters mean. <laughs> but but my friend, my friend Latia, she is certified in EMDR. Okay. Yeah, she went through the training, I think last year or early this year. Yeah. I just know that when it comes down to a, a lot of people that have been trauma survivors that have done it, mm-hmm. it really opened them up 
and they've got a lot of breakthrough. Good, good, good. Well, Carolyn, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners that we have not talked about? If you're a therapist, don't be afraid to work with clients with trauma. Yeah. Don't be afraid of it. It's probably more fearful for them than it is for you. For if sure. they walk through the door mm-hmm. and it's ready to work, that's a win. Every session doesn't have to be about the trauma. Right. And we're all on this journey to help our clients in whatever way we can. So I just I always want to encourage because it's it's a hard field. Mental mm-hmm. health, it's hard. It's hard. You're helping people navigate their very life. Right. And so I like to encourage healthcare providers because it's a hard job. And I just want I just like to be an encouragement to keep going, keep learning, be a be a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. And always try to incorporate culture as much. I love, I grew up in New York. I just love culture. Sure, yeah. You know, different culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're Cherokee. Okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. I had students that were Choctaw. So now, what does a Choc treatment center look like as opposed to, well, we have circles and we, we do arrow finding type stuff. And, and I said, oh, that's awesome. Like, how do y'all incorporate culture into treatment? That's what I want. Mm-hmm. That sounds really interesting to me. So don't be afraid to delve into their culture and see if that can be a strength in working with the treatment. Mm -hmm. That's my thing. Be encouraged. (laughs) Perfect. That is the perfect note to end on. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is a great conversation. All right. Let's do it again. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) And I mean that. I really am in. You've got my email now. So yeah. All right. All right. You enjoy the rest of your Friday. (laughs) Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Carolyn Burns and found it as valuable as we did. If you or someone you love is struggling with your mental health, please call one of our free Mental Health Assistance Center lines at 405-943-3700 or 918-585-1213 or contact us via our website at www.mhaok.org. If you are in immediate mental health crisis, please call or text 988. It is available to anyone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Additionally, Oklahoma's Victim Services 24-hour safe line is available to anyone enduring abuse by calling 1-800-522-SAFE or 1-800-522-7233. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download.